0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly podcast featuring political commentary from the center-right to the center-left. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Linda Chavez of Niskanen and Bill Galston of the Wall Street Journal and Brookings. We're also joined by Damon Linker of the Week, and our special guest this week is Yuval Levin who is Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, and who has written a very important and stimulating book called A Time to Build. Welcome, everyone. Yuval, uh, people were... This book made a huge splash, and uh, and, and rightly so. Uh, you, you make an argument that is, I think... Um, it's it's original, uh, where you're, you're uh, examining what's wrong, and and you come to the conclusion that a lot of what is ailing our society comes from the decay of institutions. So, if you can lay out your thesis quickly, it, not for this crowd, because Bill Galston uh, reviewed it, and I think mm-hmm. all of us have read it, but for our listeners. <laughs>
1: well, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. First of all, I appreciate it. Uh, The book really begins from a sense that our society is living through a crisis that we're having some trouble diagnosing and that an important part of the diagnosis, certainly not all of it, but an important part of it falls into a blind spot for us because we tend not to think in institutional terms when we think about American life. And a big part of what's gone wrong is not best understood through the lens of individual well-being of how's the economy doing or are people healthy and safe Uh, Those things matter, of course, but they're relatively okay in this moment, and what's gone wrong has to do at some level with a breakdown in our sociality and how we interact with each other and in how we understand our place in the larger society. And that to get a clear picture of that, we need to think in institutional terms to understand the shapes, the forms, the structures of what it is we do together. Those are institutions and to think beyond the the relatively well understood fact that we've lost confidence in institutions and ask ourselves what it actually means to say we've lost confidence in them. What is confidence in an institution? What is it to lose that? How could it be regained? Certainly some part of that has to do with straightforward institutional corruption or incompetence, but some part of it, I argue, also has to do with a sense that our institutions no longer see themselves as being in the business of forming us, of forming the people within them, and instead, in a lot of areas of American life, offer people platforms, ways of performing, ways of being seen, ways of taking part in a larger culture war that isn't really about the purposes and and distinct integrities of our different institutions, and that this kind of performative institutionalism has a lot to do with the decay of our institutions and also with the public's loss of trust in them.
0: Um, I thought your book was strongest when uh, you were discussing the declining role of Congress and the ways in which members no longer see themselves as institutionalists, they no longer see themselves as participating in an institution that has a higher goal, another goal, Mm -hmm. rather they are performative and they use the Congress simply as a backdrop for their own, um, celebrity or for their own clicks and media presence and so forth. I think that was, um, really insightful and, and clearly, I mean, I think it's obviously right. Um, I, I don't know that I completely buy that, uh, all the institutions you mention are suffering from the same disease. Mm-hmm. So for example, um, The universities, I think, arguably, are maintaining their institutional role. It's not one that we as conservatives are comfortable with, because we disagree with a lot of what they believe, but... They are institutionalists. They uh, in, they they bring students in and they inculcate them in a and an ethic, which is it's about learning, it's about science, it's about evidence. Um, that's how we um, improve the world. Um, they they do expect they do get and and uh, this is a. a A remarkable thing an enormous amount of loyalty from their students Mm -hmm. people acquire you know those those t-shirts and all the rest of it it's very important to them how their teams do and all that and um so they get loyalty they get um character formation um and uh and and they get a higher purpose so i'm not sure that the universities are actually guilty of losing their institutional role as you claim
1: yeah, so the argument about, inst- about uh, universities in the book is certainly more complicated than that around our political institutions, some professional institutions. Um, obviously there is a, clearly a way in which universities are formative. They're educational institutions. Um, they do understand themselves as there to shape a rising generation. But I think there's an important way in which universities have failed themselves now to be formed by the overarching academic ethic that ought to shape them toward pursuing the truth through teaching and learning. Um, I think there are ways now that universities understand themselves as platforms for students to express themselves, or for faculty, for people to You know, I I, I saw recently a uh, a a catalog from the University of Chicago, which, to uh, to my mind, is America's greatest university. Though I'm I'm not objective about it. Um, (laughs) Neither am I. (laughs) Which which argued in part that what the university offered students was a a, a place to be yourself. It said in in big letters at the top, finally, a place to be yourself. And I thought, I'm just not sure that that's what the University of Chicago did for me. Hmm. It actually told me how to be something better than what I was when I came in. And of course, it still does that and still sees itself as changing and shaping people. But I think the notion that the purpose of our core institutions is to offer people a way to finally be themselves and to, and to think of what they do in expressive terms fundamentally um, certainly has affected the ethic of our universities and that there's also a way in which they've been overtaken by the logic of the culture war and the categories of the culture war so that rather than a party of the university governing the institution and administering the institution I think in a lot of our elite universities now in particular there's a culture of administration that is fundamentally political and expressive and that itself is not shaped enough by a, an institutional ethic so that while it does shape students, it shapes them in a way that fits them toward this larger deformation of institutions in American life rather than helping them to resist it some.
2: Yeah. Well,
3: one of the things, Yvonne, uh, that I, I think we conservatives sometimes miss is we focus a lot of attention on universities and the role that they play. But by the time that students get to the university, they've already been formed by public education, mm-hmm. by and large. And I think we've seen such a decline in terms of the quality of public education in uh, the sense of forming character. And, and you know, you've written about it, I've written a lot about uh, about immigration in the United States. And one of the reasons we were so successful in terms of being this open uh, society in which we welcomed in newcomers is that they entered the public schools and they became American and uh, students learned American history. They, uh, there was really an emphasis on character building. And this is something that's preoccupied me for a very long time. Back in the 1970s, when I was editor of the American Educator at the American Federation of Teachers, um, we started a series. And Bill Bennett helped uh, create uh, the series of trying to provide teachers with materials to use in the classroom uh, that aimed at character formation. And we did that largely because there had been this huge transformation in public education in which um, you had this whole moral relativism that swept uh, schools from the 60s onwards. So I think that, you know, emphasizing the breakdown in institutions, I think uh, Mona's right. The universities have a strong institutional presence, public schools also have a strong institutional presence. presence, but the content of what it is they are transmitting has been so dramatically transformed. uh, And that's part of the problem today.
1: Yeah, I I think that's right. I think we are in some ways getting to a moment where, particularly on the right, people are returning to thinking about K through 12 educational questions in terms of character formation and citizen formation after a period where there was for a time a kind of bipartisan coalition of education reformers that focused much more on test scores and skills training, um, a coalition that I think achieved some valuable things but that uh, for various reasons is broken apart from both directions, uh, that is left and right in the in the last few years, and that in its wake when, when the next phase of education reform takes shape, I think you're gonna see a lot more of an emphasis from the right on character formation and on civics. Um, that matters. I think it's enormously important, but I would also say the, the, the quality of education in America's public schools varies massively. Um, there are a lot of really great public schools in the United States. And I, I think public schooling is a very important facet of, of citizen formation and really of solidarity in general. Um, and I think it makes sense f- for us to try to think about how to strengthen public schooling and make it better, uh, rather than just looking for escape valves, which some people need and and should have. But, um, you know, and and so I do think it makes sense for us to worry about schools as formative institutions and to help them understand themselves in those terms more than they've tended to.
4: Bill. Well, Yuval, uh, Mona at at the outset referred to the fact that I'd had an opportunity to review your book at some length. Post was very generous with its yeah. word count, I must say. And it's only fair to give you an opportunity to reply to perhaps the central question that I raised about your book. Mm-hmm. And let me summarize it this way. A lot of your book revolves around the distinction between the formative and the performative, right? And your argument is that our institutions have neglected the, the, la, the former and provided platforms for the latter. I would add, parenthetically, that if you put cameras in Congress, mm-hmm. then you should expect what you get. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? And there is a cost to transparency that can be measured, I think, in institutional terms. We've made a choice that we may want to rethink and revisit. Okay, but there's a third there's a third leg of this analytical stool it's not just the perform it's not just the formative and the performative and the performative it's also the formative and the deformative mm-hmm. and the problem that i had with the analytical structure of the book is that it used formation without distinguishing between good and bad formation it's not simply right. a question of whether or not you do it it's how you do it to what end and uh, and my argument was that when institutions are unfair or unjust or oppressive, they cannot form their members properly, and it is understandable that people revolt against them.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you, first of all. F- f- thank you for the review, from which I learned a huge amount, and, and I very much appreciate uh, you raise a good question, and it's certainly something I take up in the book to some degree. I mean, as I make the argument that simply being an institution doesn't mean that you're doing something valuable. The, the, the mob is an institution, as I argue in the book, and it's one we should seek to destroy because uh, it, it, it pursues a destructive end in an institutionally effective way. And the fact that it's a solid, formative institution is not an argument for our regarding it highly or well. Um, I I do think, though, that that question of whether what this institution does is good or bad for our society is a a more evident question, a more straightforward question, and that the challenge that's posed to our institutions by the rise of performativeness is more complex and harder to see, and so it takes a little more work to uncover it. But ultimately, what it argues for is that what people should be doing within our institutions is engaging in an argument about the kind of formation they should be pursuing that is what is the good we're after and that question obviously then becomes a question for society to understand in normative terms uh, some of these institutions some of our institutions are and have been oppressive or, and as I suggest in the book the term institutional racism is not a metaphor in America it's a, it's a reality it's a lived reality for many people And so, the fact that something is an institution doesn't make it a good thing. But I think the the less obvious reality for Americans, just given the nature of our culture, it's not really something new, is simply the fact that we require functional institutions in order to flourish. That advancing the goods we do want to advance in our society requires working institutions and requires working through and not just around or over institutions. And so I, I guess I would say it, it's because I think that needs to be emphasized that the book emphasizes it. It's certainly not because I don't think that the that there's a distinction between good and bad institutions. And I'd also say, Bill, I think the, the, the point you raised at the beginning here about transparency is enormously important. Um, it is an argument I bring out in the book, I, I, and I had an essay in The Atlantic last week making this point about Congress, that transparency has great value but it it involves a trade-off like everything else and if we treat it as though it doesn't and simply think that more and more transparency is always better we lose sight of the fact that every institution needs an inner life and Congress in particular because its work is bargaining and compromise and accommodation which are things that just can't be done in the open really requires some spaces where members can actually know each other and work with each other and it is sorely lacking in those kinds of spaces. It's man.
0: why the uh, intelligence committees tend to be the ones that get the most done. Yeah. Because they're... they members they're, love those th- committees. They love them because
4: they're, they're confidential. Yeah. Yep. Just one last comment. Yuval, I was really surprised that you didn't protest against what Mona said in her introduction. She said that it was an original book. Now, you yourself said <laughs> that yes. paraphrasing Aristotle is your only marketable <laughs> oh, skill. Yes.
1: I'm a conservative. Originality is overrated. Uh, yeah, look, I, th- this is an Aristotelian argument. It, it's also an argument very influenced by a teacher of mine, Hugh Hecklow, who wrote a wonderful book about institutions about a 15 great, years ago. A great, book. From which I learned a huge amount. Um and Hugh passed away while I was working on this book and, uh, and only sort of knew it was coming. It would have been a much better book if he had been able to read uh, it and, uh, and and think it through with me.
0: Damon, I'm just going to tell a quick line and then I'll come to you. Uh, you did, there's the story about the professor who handed back a paper to a student and said, your paper is both good and original. Unfortunately, the parts that are original are not good and the parts that are good are not original. <laughs> Okay, Damon, what have you got for us?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, uh, hello, uh, Yuval. Good to, Hi, to talk to you. I, I very much like the book. Uh, Thank I, you. I, I, I guess the thing that um, it stimulates in my mind most of all at the moment, because I spend so much time kind of focused on the uh, the news cycle, which these days is focused on the upcoming election. I'm thinking a lot about parties as institutions and. The striking fact that four years ago we lived through a kind of hostile takeover of the institution of the Republican Party by this insurgent candidacy of Donald Trump, which was kind of prefigured four years before that, when a series of highly unorthodox candidates sort of surged in the polls and then collapsed, and then another one would surge, you know, Bachman. and. Uh, Gangrich and Santorum, each of them kind of as if the, the voters were just disgusted by the, uh, institutional party's desire to see Romney be the nominee. And eventually they did settle on Romney because they couldn't find any other, uh, champion to, as a substitute. And then you get Trump four years later where he actually does consolidate this kind of anti-institutional vote. And how we're now living through a kind of an alternative version of this with the Democrats where at least in in the last week or so, uh it appeared that the two main uh, most viable options are either a socialist who isn't even a Democrat, only becomes a Democrat to run for president, using the party as a vehicle, but not at all emerging from within the party establishment at all. That's Sanders, of course. And then Michael Bloomberg, who for much of his career has been a liberal Republican, and isn't working through the party at all other than the fact that he's trying to buy the party by buying ads and hiring lots of democratic consultants
4: he's overpaying by the way (laughs) yes he is overpaying them (laughs) which which has all
2: kinds of advantages uh for his quest so and then you do have several kind of establishment candidates in the middle but none of them can kind of can get traction. So there's a kind of vacuum in the institutional center. And I I just wondered if in light of what we're seeing unfolding, uh, especially with the Democrats, since you wrote the book, um, you know, what what do you counsel for moving forward here to is there a path forward to how we might strengthen uh, the, the parties, or is it any different than your advice about other institutions or, or just your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, thank you. I, I, the book certainly gets into this question of the place of the parties um, in in shaping the political arena, and, and I agree with you. I think we, we saw in 2016, you describe it just now as using the party as a vehicle, and I think that's, that's right, or using the party as a platform is another way to think about it. They're just the parties become places for for narcissists to stand and display themselves uh, there was a moment in in the most recent debate uh, the first one involving uh, mayor bloomberg where someone asked him something about whether the person who gets the most uh, uh, delegates should should just get the nomination and his answer was well i don't know whatever the rules of the party are uh, is what should happen a moment that suggests that he doesn't really know what the rules of the party are, and that it doesn't really matter to him what they are, because the party is just a way for him to, uh, to 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 have a platform for running personally. And I think we, you know, we're we're approaching an election where it may very well be that Donald Trump, who wasn't much of a Republican until he became the nominee of the party, will run against someone who wasn't much of a Democrat until he became the nominee of the party. And it is the weakness of our parties that has subjected our politics to such intense partisanship. The 2016 election, from my point of view, watching from a fairly close-up view of the Republican side, was a kind of example of a rolling failure of coordination, where there were a lot of people who stood around saying... Somebody ought to do something about this, (laughs) and my thought was always, well, I don't know, you're six senators. Maybe you could try to do something about this. But no one had the instinct that, well, I am the party. I'm the insider. We should we should get together and try to figure out what needs to happen here. And I think the Democrats are facing something like the same problem, which is a, a confusion about what the role of the party is actually supposed to be as an institution, as an organization, in our politics. I, I think my approach to what might be done about that is, is also not so original. I mean, I think you would find it in, uh, in, in some of the folks around this table and the work of John Rauch and others, where it seems to me that there is a need to give political professionals more of a role uh, in shaping the options that then confront voters on Election Day. But getting from here to there requires making a case against the democratization of the party system which would be a very, very hard case for any politician to make. Mm. Part of the reason to make arguments like this from the outside is to normalize them a little bit, to socialize them a little bit, so that it becomes a little bit easier for politicians to point to these as ideas that are out there that might be worth considering. But it would be a huge challenge for someone within the, the structure of the Democratic or Republican Party to say that there need to be more decisions made by party elites uh, before decisions are made by voters. I mean, you know, good luck.
0: Yeah. It's, well, but at, le- at least uh,
3: the Democrats have the opportunity at the convention uh, with the superdelegates being able to weigh in. Yeah, and I mean, it Although
1: is, maybe they do. I mean, I, there was well, that it may not in the Republican never get convention there. when Mike Lee was standing there literally yelling no on the floor and holding up the rule book that said Republicans yeah. had options too. But right. you know, they didn't by use that point. Them. Right. Uh, yeah. um,
0: I was uh, I was thinking of you uh, when I saw the story this week that the Boy Scouts of America are filing for Chapter Eleven. Doesn't mean they're going to go out of business entirely, but uh, they're in trouble because of accusations of sexual abuse. Um, and I'm wondering if there are certain um, structural uh, incentives in our society that cause us to delegitimize institutions even more than we have to. So the Boy Scouts may have had some bad uh, scout leaders, uh, but they were, even by the numbers that are in the news stories, a tiny percentage of the total. And yet, uh, because you can sue people and because you can get a lot of attention and because it's a good news story, for all those reasons, um, we tend to perhaps delegitimize institutions more than they merit. What do you have any yeah. views about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I do think we're we're living in a moment that's particularly hostile to institutions. It's not the first such moment in American history. I mean, there is this is this is in our DNA in some respects. We 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 Americans come with a sort of uh, mistrust of institutions. It's very deeply rooted in our culture comes from a certain kind of Protestantism that shaped our culture early on and it was very suspicious of mediation so that even as we've always been good institution builders as a practical matter we've always been suspicious of institutions and I think this is a moment for for technological reasons and for cultural reasons in which we're especially inclined to to look at institutions with great suspicion and hostility sometimes even more than they deserve though it's especially true when they do deserve it to some degree and mm-hmm. it's hard to know uh where to pause and slow down i would say that the boy scouts are also an instance though when you think about the history of the boy scouts of the ways in which american society sometimes responds to moments like this by building institutions the boy scouts came out of an era in america Uh, which in politics we think of as the progressive era, but in American culture was really a moment of responding to dramatic, dynamic social change, to massive immigration, to urbanization, industrialization, ultimately, after a while, by building institutions of all sorts to try to address some of the problems we have. And I I, I, am hopeful that we're reaching a moment when the kinds of challenges we face and the kind of change we're living through might also drive us to think about how to solve problems in terms of building institutions. It's a knack that we that we seem to have lost some in our time. And the, the argument of the book is not just for sustaining and rebuilding our institutions, but also for answering contemporary problems by building contemporary institutions, which I think we don't do enough of. Excellent.
4: I am very sympathetic to that argument. But it does raise another area where Yuval and I at least have a nuanced difference, not a black and white difference. Uh, And that is that I think before we can engage in the rebuilding that Yuval is rightly calling for, uh, in many cases, we have to work through a legacy of silence that has allowed oppression and injustice to flourish. And regrettably, although I hold the Catholic Church in very high regard. I'm gonna have to put it on the table as Exhibit A. There's no question about the fact that the faith in the Catholic Church as an institution has taken a real hit, right? Would anyone say that the hit was unjust or unjustified? No, as a matter of fact, the failure for decades to confront it just allowed it to metastasize throughout the organization. And we cannot build new institutions on a foundation of injustice. It just won't work. And if this is an anti-institutional moment, uh, I think we're going to have to we're going to have to take the good that can come out of it as the basis of the good yet to be done. Yeah,
1: well, I do agree with that. And, and the book takes up the Catholic Church as an example in this sense that there are institutional problems that are better understood as insider problems than outsider problems. That where the fact of strong institutional integrity is actually a way of masking and protecting gross injustice and that there th- th- those aren't the th- – th- what's happening there is not that the institution becomes a platform but that it protects corruption a much more traditional well well-known form of institutional corruption but one we very much live with now and that obviously is a challenge to any effort to rebuild the public's confidence in our institutions.
0: Well, we'll leave it there, Yuval. You are always uh, thrifty, loyal, obedient <laughs> to whatever else it is. The boys, brave, courteous, curve, brave kind. Courteous, yes.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and I, we, too, was uh, a boy scout.
0: <laughs> and we very much appreciate your Thank you very book, much. And you're coming and spending so much time with us. Thanks so much.
1: I appreciate it. Thanks.
0: Well, last night we had a Democratic debate, uh, the first appearance of Michael Bloomberg. Um, it was. Um, it was, well... How should we describe it, Damon? You want to use what would be your, your precy of last I'll, night's I'll, debate?:
2: I will quote Peter Wehner, a friend of some of ours, uh, who was uh, part of the New York Times's roundtable, about uh, the debate. This is what he had to say about Michael Bloomberg's performance. His performance was a catastrophe. stiff, arrogant, tone-deaf. And intensely unlikable. His answer on non-disclosure agreements was among the worst in the history of presidential (laughs) debates. That's just a taste. That is so true. Can I just
0: jump in really quick and just say on that topic, I I cannot believe that the word he used about why he was not going to release these women from their agreements was, he said, because they were consensual.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You know, oh, okay, can I defend Michael Bloomberg <laughs> Go here? for it. I, I, this is know, big it's, to it's, differ after all. Yeah, I, I sat there. Uh, first of all, I watched it with uh, one of my grandchildren, um, and, which was interesting. She's a voting age. And um, my reaction was, you know, there were two audiences. There are obviously the audience of pundits and the people who are watching the debate, um, and then the sort of broader audience of America. And I thought Bloomberg did not do as badly as the pundits are all saying he did. Yes, was he rough around the edges? We, we all knew he wasn't a great debater. Anybody who watched clips from his various mayoral uh Contest knows that he's not a great debater, and yes, he really flubbed the answers on uh, on the disclosure agreements, and also I think on his taxes that didn't sort of come across. The fact that I have I thousands can't use TurboTax like I, you right, peons, right? <laughs> that that obviously <laughs> did not come across well, and even on and, and on stop and frisk, he was particularly tone deaf on the other hand, he had a few good moments. And, you know, I loved his line about Bernie, you know, what a country that, you know, (laughs) the leading socialist in the country is a millionaire and owns three houses. Um, When he felt strongly about someone, when he was talking about the climate, for example, he was, I thought, really good. He was concise. He, uh, He gained some points. And My sense was it it was such an awful food fight and the nastiness and Elizabeth Warren. I mean, I just wanted to jump into my TV and shake her. She was so obnoxious and so difficult. Um, and, you know, afterwards, I'm hearing all the pundits talking about how she won the debate. No, she didn't. Not with voters. Not with people who are actually going to go in and have to vote for her. She was intensely unlikable. And um, I just thought she came across terribly. And I think that's the reason why she's been going down in the polls. I've been saying all along, I don't think she's very likable. And she certainly wasn't last night. Uh, Bill, I, I, arguably— I will, I look-
2: could I just briefly allow Brett Stevens to have the last word on on Bloomberg on this point at least Uh, uh, he wrote you know a column uh, a couple of months ago in the Times titled Run Mike Run Mm. his take on Bloomberg was quote (laughs) oy (laughs) ve." so Uh, so anyway yeah
0: Um, Bill arguably the decision of most of the people on that debate stage to go after Bloomberg and not Bernie Sanders was the best thing that could have happened to Sanders, who sails away from this as the unmatched frontrunner.
4: I could not agree more. That's Mm -hmm. the best one-line summary of the strategic consequences of the debate. And uh, I think it is inevitable that he will win in Nevada this weekend he will then steam into South Carolina, having won the popular vote in the first three contests. The latest, the latest survey out of South Carolina had him tied with Biden, which suggests that all of the momentum is positive for him and neg- negative for Biden, who didn't do a bad job last night, by the way. That was one of his stronger performances, whether it was too little, too late, remains to be seen. But at this point, uh, he has to be regarded as the undisputed front runner, a title that last night did nothing to alter, let alone remove. Uh, And for all the talk of a hung convention, which is what journalists have been yearning for for the last 68 years, uh, I think it's at least as possible uh, that there will be a consolidation around a self, you know, an avowed and proud socialist as the nominee of the Democratic Party. The only way that outcome is averted is if there is a crystallization of what I'll tendentiously call the non-socialist vote in the Democratic Party around a single challenger. Uh, and it's anybody's guess whether that's going to happen. But last night did nothing to promote that outcome either. So it did nothing to retard Sanders' surge, and it did nothing to promote a single viable alternative This to is Sanders.
3: exactly what happened in 2016 in the Republican Party. I mean, it is is—it is like a replay of the Republican primaries and the Republican debates where you had a lot of impressive, uh, acceptable people up there, and then you had this one weirdo, uh, Donald Trump. and But with um, a
0: very loyal following.
3: But with a loyal fo- – but it's the same thing with Bernie. Exactly. I mean, it's it exactly is. the same thing, and mm-hmm. it's um, – I go back to our earlier discussion with all, and, and uh, it is the decline in the institutions of the party uh, and having some party discipline. I mean, there was a time when parties would intervene and would say to people thinking about getting into races, you know, well, maybe next, you know, maybe you can wait. This isn't your year. Uh, somebody like a Pete Buttigieg, for example, might have been talked to. Perhaps even Amy Klobuchar, um, and and that we would have a much narrower field which would not allow somebody with this, you know plurality that is not a majority uh, to be able to survive.
4: Well, but that the old party system that had authority as a gate as a gatekeeper rested on some fundamental structural facts. First of all, the strong role of party regulars as opposed to the rank and file in shaping, if not making these decisions. And secondly, a, you know, a political finance system that directed enormous resources, channeled them through the party system. We have deconstructed both foundations of gatekeeping Well, I
0: understand how we deconstructed the finance system, but what about the party regulars? How did we do that?
4: Well, it's very simple. Uh, (laughs) I cast my first vote for president in 1968, uh, which was a train wreck in my political party. The consequence of that train wreck was that the old... Party-dominated system, which led to Hubert Humphrey's nomination, despite the fact that he had barely entered any primaries. Uh, that led to its replacement by a bottom-up grassroots movement. Uh, that was the you know those are the famous McGovern-Fraser reforms post 1968, of which George McGovern was the immediate and handsome beneficiary. And then for reasons known only to Republicans, although you hadn't had that kind of crack up, you decided to ape us. Yes. And here we are. So the party, the, the party establishments gave away their power to what turns out to be a relatively unrepresentative slice of their grassroots membership.
0: And the irony is that they have done it in the name of greater democracy. Well,
4: and with, <laughs> it is more democratic, but is more democratic always better well
0: it's it's more democratic except that in the case of both Trump and uh, and Sanders it's it's somebody who has a strong minority backing.
4: Well that's you know we that is absolutely right. Uh, we now have a system that rewards intensity uh, and it rewards certain sorts of characteristics but not others right It's now a system that rewards, the excellences of campaigning more than the excellences of governing. And the point of the old party regular dominated system was that these were people who had a serious understanding of what it meant actually to frame a majority and then use it to govern the country. That consciousness has now been dispersed, if not destroyed. And here we are.
2: What uh, I, to- I agree with all of that. I mean, but to me, uh, the thing about the debate last night that was m- most striking to me was, you know, it was a very entertaining debate compared to many of the others because of all the fireworks and everybody attacking everybody else. It made it uh, a kind of uh, like a car crash for the- that lasted for two hours. You kind of watched, but that's the point that... You have to wonder. I think it encapsulates this point of the best example was probably the exchanges between Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar. Like that was that was a fight that had no kind of policy substance to it at all. They're both ideological moderates, and Buttigieg made a a calculated point that his strategy to win is to kneecap his closest rival for the moderate lane uh, in in the next primary or, primary or two, rather than, say, trying to shine as, as, you know, taking it to Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump was hardly mentioned. He was hardly tonight. mentioned, exactly. Almost, you, know, you could tell that Bloomberg wanted to do that because that's what he's been doing in all of his ads from the beginning, but he was then assaulted by everybody and had to defend himself. And so instead of Buttigieg saying, I'm going to ignore all of you, I'm going to make the most compelling case against Donald Trump, and in doing so, will shine and rise above everybody else, he decides after... Klobuchar has been hit over not knowing the president of Mexico's name uh, by one of the questioners, and that had was a very kind of tense exchange for her that lasted, I think, even longer than it should have—way
0: longer. given,
2: Given that it was it was just an embarrassing flub on her part, nothing that significant, and then. And then when it was over, Budajesh makes a point of coming back and hitting her again. And then he did a similar thing about 45 minutes later. And again, there was no content to it at all. It was just a kind of personal brawl where he was trying to make her angry so she would get flustered and look bad. And it sort of worked, but it made me actually dislike him. Yeah. Uh, right. and, and and so then where are we? We're like left with, oh, I don't like any of these people. I guess it's going to be burning. By the way,
0: that moderator. Just one quick point, Linda. That that uh, moderator who asked the question about the uh, the Mexican president's name. What an absurd use of her time uh, to say, well, do you think it's right that a major, that a candidate for president forgot the name of a major, you know, American ally and partner? I mean, for heaven's sake,
3: uh, that was just embarrassing. Well, I thought her, when I started to talk, that's exactly the point I was going to make. It's it's not even so much about whether or not the candidates should know who the president of mexico is my guess is they could all tell you who the president of canada is um and and by the way i became the republican nominee in 1986 in the state of maryland because i knew such things there was a a quiz that was given to all the candidates i was the only one who could answer the questions how did that Uh, work out? uh, yeah it didn't (laughs) work out so well you know barbara mikulski who had you know no idea who the actually uh the prime minister of israel was at the time which i thought was pretty shocking since she was on foreign relations um you you know didn't didn't hurt, hurt her at all but the point was the moderator's tone she was absolutely inappropriate and this idea that these moderators who are supposed to be kind of neutral there to ask questions they're supposed to be i think kind of an anonymous vehicle to give the the listeners the viewers the chance to to get information she became you know, the a, a participant Yeah, she in, in was the being debate. performative, yeah, as and it was, would yeah, say. Yeah, and it was, uh, I thought it was totally inappropriate, but it goes back to, again, some of the earlier discussion about what television does to us all, mm-hmm. and everybody wants to be a star and have their 15 minutes, and I think that's what oh, she was it's worse doing.
4: Than, it's worse than that. I get the impression, this is not a partisan comment, that a lot of rank-and-file uh, members of Congress on the Republican side are really auditioning for commentators' gigs on Fox. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And Some of request, them have actually. And they regard quit that and, as a promotion. Yes.
0: Oh yeah. Yes. Absolutely. There, there was who's that fellow from Utah who quit his job as a congressman and now is a full-time Fox commentator? I forget his name. Uh, Chaffetz. 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 Yeah. 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 Chaffetz. Um, so yeah, that's that's a that's a career path. Absolutely right. Um, and uh, and I see that Andrew Yang is now a yes CNN interviewer. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
4: He was pretty good at it. Um, actually, too, like he was actually. He was quite winning. Good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, he was he was one of my favorites uh, as far as that goes. Um, all right, so um, so that was um, that was the debate. I don't think that uh, Amy Klobuchar was at her best. By the way, for what it's worth, um, she she seemed extremely nervous and rather than living <coughs> using the moments that were presented to her. Um, to create a new uh, impression, she she doubled down on her her talking points, and I thought it was um, not not her most effective performance. All right, now uh, let's move on to um, the Justice Department and um, and the President, Bill Barr, and the President had some words this week, or maybe they did, and maybe they didn't. We're not sure whether that was genuine um, a, a genuine tiff or not but uh bill barr said on television that the president commenting on justice department matters made it impossible for him to do his job um 2000 former doj employees signed a letter calling upon barr to resign barr dropped hints that he might be thinking of resigning um we uh, uh we We also have um, uh, an emergency meeting called by some uh, federal, uh, an organization of federal judges who are usually, this organization is usually just to to lobby for compensation and that sort of thing, and I suppose retirement benefits, but they called an emergency meeting because of the problems with uh, worries about the way our justice system is being handled. And of course, we had the pardons and commutations by the president this week. He said, I am the chief law enforcement
3: officer of the United States. Linda. Well, first of all, you know, these commutations and pardons for people who have been involved in in political corruption, uh, the irony is is just, you know, so thick that you can, can barely tolerate it. Uh, but also one of the things I wonder is why... Does the public not get incensed that people who have cheated the government out of you know millions of dollars of taxes are rewarded by this president? I mean, most of us, you know, we're coming up close to to April, not that far away. Many people have already done their taxes. Um, and you know if most only. of yeah, <laughs> right. But you know, I mean, it's Americans pay their taxes. It's one of the things that's sort of remarkable about the United States is that we have largely a voluntary system and most people pay what that is owed. And here we have a bunch of people who've cheated and stolen um, and enriched themselves and they get these pardons. I I just find this
0: um, remarkable. I do too. But I will tell you that the Republicans will say, They'll do the whataboutism. They'll say, "Oh, yeah, but cares? the Democrat." And yeah. did you know what you know? Obama let you know Eric Holder get away with, and you know that's that's how that would go. But uh, well, Damon or Bill,
4: uh, I mean, let's let's step back from the particulars. Uh, we have an overweening executive. By that, I don't just mean Donald Trump. We have a structural constitutional problem. We have allowed a situation to develop uh, in which the Congress of the United States has neutered itself, and it has led to an excessive growth of power, a power shift to the executive on the one hand and the judiciary on the other. And now we're witnessing a smackdown between two institutions that have taken on a bunch of powers in recent decades that properly belong to the legislative branch. And uh, I share Linda's outrage about the particulars uh, and I am not thrilled, to put it mildly, about the current occupant of the Oval Office, but we need to think deeply about how we allowed this growth of executive power to take place under presidents of both political parties and how we can take it back before it's too late. That's the issue. Uh, And and whatever the structural truth of the president's claim that he is the chief law enforcement officer, uh, one of the fundamental pillars of the republic is the idea of the rule of law which is supposed to be insulated to the maximum extent possible from the kinds of uses or abuses that we're now seeing it subject to. So these are these are very large questions yeah. that we dare not postpone any longer. We sort of shoved them aside for decades. They're now smacking us in the face, and it's a clear and present danger.
0: So, David, one of the um, one of the things that came up this week is this uh, th- that Roger Stone is going to request a new trial because uh, the jury forewoman in his case. Turns out, had re- run for office on the Democratic ticket, and on the strength of this alone, they are alleging that she couldn't have been objective as a juror. Um, and this is exactly the kind of thing that Trump and his and his enablers uh, encourage. You know, Trump said that that Judge Curiel couldn't perform his functions because he was from Mex- of Mexican ancestry and I'm building a wall and so on and it is this denial of individualism really because in in the United States we take people as individuals not as group members um, we don't say you're a kulak therefore you're guilty <laughs> um, we uh, you know we, we are supposed to at least have the idea that, you know when you when you're tried you're, you're given a jury of your peers you're not allowed to be i'm not allowed to be tried only by disaffected republicans but uh but that's that's the standard and it and it it, it is this corrosive undermining of the i the very concept of impartial justice look um, by the way, David French did Yeoman's work. He looked at the um, voir dire in the case and noted that both lawyers had knowledge of this woman's political past. This was not hidden from anyone. They could have voted. They could have uh, moved to strike her on those grounds. They, his defense attorneys they didn't. Um, They had peremptory uh, challenges too. They they could have challenged her exactly. Exactly, they could have uh, dismissed her for no reason. Their own peremptory challenge. In any case, um, this is the kind of um, of of corrosion of these ideals that has real world consequences because this this really um, ascetic uh, cynicism uh, makes makes compromise practically impossible. And, um, and it can sow the seeds of, of
2: really, really serious social strife. Damon? Well, I, I agree. I'm troubled by all of it. I mean, I think Bill was right to talk about it in a slightly larger frame beyond just Trump. Trump is pushing at weak points in a system that has been degrading for quite a while and but it is also important to put it in in even a broader context maybe going back to Watergate and even before that I mean we're dealing with a, what I think is a kind of structural defect in the design of the Constitution itself if we want a truly independent Justice Department then it can't be housed in the executive branch I mean it is According to uh, a lot of theories about the president, not all of them necessarily that point toward kind of absolute power, the, the president is the head of the executive branch and gets to hire and fire people at will. People serve at his pleasure and so forth. And he appoints the, uh, the attorney general. And the attorney general is in charge of these investigations, including investigations of the presidency, the White House, the executive branch. And that's a huge tension. And, one of the worst examples of that tension being exploited is probably John F. Kennedy appointing his own brother to be Attorney General. Now, in Kennedy's short presidency, we don't know, I think, of any case where, you know, uh, the Kennedy White House could have been investigated for a serious issue. Uh, but would we have trusted that Robert Kennedy would lead such an investigation? And would we have trusted it would be fair? And then, of course, you get Watergate, and we constructed a series of kind of paper uh, barriers between the White House and the Justice Department and all of these norms that are expected that presidents aren't supposed to interfere. But it doesn't take very much To find examples of bias in every direction, and Trump is his specialty is to point to these. Like, look, this person had a tweet where he admitted he's a Democrat. This can't be fair, and and that just tears down those barriers, and we're left with this problem, which again has been a problem for a while, but we're in a culture now where uh, there it's being exacerbated uh, so much because people because partisanship is so intense. And, uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say about it other than well, throw my hands me, up and say, yeah, let's try to fix this, but well, I don't know
0: how. Let, let me suggest um, that what we have seen um, from Democrats has not been encouraging on this score, on exactly the point that you've both raised, all of us have raised, um, the, the um, imbalance of power, the, uh, the, the accretion of power to the executive. Um, You would think that the Democrats would want to think clearly about this, that it isn't just a problem of Trump, but it's that, you know, a loaded gun was sitting on the Oval Office desk when he took power. Um, And it was left there by a lot of people who uh, cheerfully um, gave him, gave the executive that authority. And yet, um, when you listen to the Democratic candidates for president, you, um, you hear them saying, Things like they're going to um, do things through executive order, just like Trump, and uh, they're, they're going to uh, uh, outlaw this. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren said she was going to outlaw all drilling on federal lands and mining and so forth. And I mean, she,
2: also, she also tweeted a week ago that she would personally, as president, launch an investigation of everyone involved in the Trump administration.
0: Exactly, oh. exactly. Now, that's real Banana Republic stuff. And, um, and 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 that you know when I talk to Democrats um, uh, about what's wrong with the Trump administration, it's amazing how often they bring up the judges and say, you know, he's he's packing the courts with all of these right wing judges. Well, hang on, that is the part of his job that he is completely allowed to do, and that is the part of his job that would not be different under any Republican administration. That's not. The danger, it's not the thing that they should be focused on and worried about. Yes, I mean, they should try to win so they can appoint judges they like, but um, that isn't the danger to
3: our constitutional order. Well, but the problem really comes down to the fact that we have in the highest office in the land a man who is completely amoral slash immoral. And he is not bound by any of the conventions, any of, of um, you know, the norms that we have always had uh, with presidents. And I don't know how you deal with that short of, you know, impeachment, which we just went through and which the Republicans decided uh, that they weren't, you know, they simply weren't going to listen. They didn't want to hear evidence um, and they weren't going to make a decision based on what that... You know, what uh, the case was. They were going to do it based on party loyalty. So, you know, I don't know how you get around that. And even to Damon's point of of insulating somehow the Department of Justice. I mean, I suppose you could modify, um, you know, create legislation that would make the attorney general be somebody who served for term as opposed to somebody, you know, who was set at the pleasure of the president. But even that, I think, you know, it might be challenge number one constitutionally um but you know that certainly didn't insulate the head of the fbi um so i i just i i don't know how you get around it when you have somebody who is such a rule breaker uh in the oval office
0: and when you have an electorate that really doesn't, doesn't mind yeah, doesn't care doesn't
4: yeah well uh i am a dyed in the wool madisonian uh but ultimately i have to confess that it is a government of men and not of laws. Mm -hmm. It can only work as well as the people in it and the people at large who are monitoring the people in it. And if one or both of those sides of the constitutional equation is set at zero, (laughs) then the product is what we're seeing.
3: But it's worse than that bill, it's also uh, dependent on the people who do the electing. Well, we said that. That's what I'm saying, right?
4: It's the people in the institutions and then the people at large who are monitoring okay. the performance. Oh, right. yeah. I thought people. you meant
0: Congress. No, monitoring. no, no, okay. no, no, no. Congress, no, not is, you right. know, Congress yeah. is not and, and, you know, people like us can say this, um, but, uh, but it's awfully hard if you're a politician to say, you know, the problem is actually <laughs> the, the people. Well, actually,
4: <laughs> one brave politician, a former member of Congress— you know by the name of barney frank yeah said you know in a town meeting when he was still running for congress he he said you know you've been beating up uh, on me and us and congress and we're pretty bad but you know what you're no walk in the park either (laughs) (laughs) and and that and that evoked a huge laugh from the audience and there's a great deal of the good a great deal of truth there's also that.
0: the great story about Mo Udall, who um, was running for president, I think, in 76. And uh, when the results came in that night, he went to address his supporters and he said, Well, the people have spoken, the bastards. <laughs> right. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and, you know, and, and there, uh, speaking of Mo Udall lines, here's one of, here's one of my favorites. Uh, he was getting along in years. And he was asked, is there any cure for presidential ambition? Hmm. And he thought for a minute, and he said, why, yes, there is. Embalming. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember that. <laughs> that's
0: great. Uh, uh, oh, um, that's, his family story is also very interesting, if anybody cares to Google it, because he comes from this huge Mormon clan that went in two different directions— Part of the clan became Republicans, and part became Democrats, and it all depended on which wife of a particular Mormon patriarch they were descended from. One was liberal, and one was conservative. Yeah, <laughs> Sounds like Saudi Arabia. It does, it does, <laughs> but, uh, but that's, that's, that's. Mothers are important. Yeah, <laughs> very important. All right. Um, final, uh, final thoughts? Something you want to draw attention to,
3: Linda? Well, uh, I wanted to draw attention to actually an article, but larger than that, a a new project. Uh, Some of us have been quite distressed at the 1619 project launched by the New York Times. And uh, this week, uh, Jason Riley in the Wall Street Journal, uh, my other favorite uh, columnist from the Wall Street Journal, had a piece about a new project uh, that was started by Bob Woodson, and uh, it's called the 1776 Project. Its point being, and it includes a bunch of people who not not all of whom are conservatives, people like Glenn Lowry, for example, um, who you know want to point to the fact that yes, slavery is America's original sin, but what was unique about the American experience in slavery, which after all had a uh, thousands uh, of year tradition, is that it was America where we first thought of the notion of abolition and the abolitionist movement. Um, was very important.
0: Yeah, well, I am not. I don't buy that, but we can get into that sometime. Well, As a historical
4: <laughs> matter, I think that's probably not right.
0: No.
3: Yeah. You think uh, the English were more... Well, the English
4: abolished
0: slavery long before we did. And well, uh, I know
3: they did, uh, but that doesn't uh, mean the movement.
4: Uh, actually, uh, well...
3: Okay. Well, but we should have, we should have a, a we whole should pod have a discussion
0: on, on the 1619 right. Project All right. and, All right. and the 1776 Project. Bill.
4: Well, my... My attention was arrested just this morning by you know, an op ed by Max Boot that I think is going to evoke howls of protest, <laughs> but also uh, provides much food for thought, where he compared the 10 most religious countries on the face of the earth and the 10 least religious countries on the face of the earth, much to the disadvantage of the 10 most religious countries. And it was a bracing reminder that the traditional pieties about the relationship between religion and what we regard as well-being need to be interrogated. That doesn't mean I agree with his bottom line necessarily, but it's something to think about. Yeah, of course, most of the religious countries on his list were poor countries, so there's that. But But his argument is not that poverty produces religion, but that an excess of religion may keep people mired in poverty. Um,
3: it's the old argument about the Catholic the, countries and, and the, the Protestant, Protestant countries. Exactly. Yeah. So uh,
4: it, yeah. all I'm saying is, you know, uh, I'm not saying he's right mm-hmm. uh, in every particular or in general, but it's worth thinking about. Okay.
0: Uh, I would just say that the Scottish Enlightenment, which was brought to us by a bunch of very hardy Presbyterians, led to great wealth. Uh, around
4: the world, anyway. Wait a, Damon. Minute, wait a minute, David. David Hume was nobody's idea of a sturdy <laughs> Presbyterian. was a flat-out atheist well, pretending to be an agnostic, and he was the most
2: important figure in the movement. Well, I don't know. I mean, Adam Smith is pretty important. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I, I was teaching Adam Smith, Wealth, Wealth of Nations, just yesterday in class. Oh, so I, I have him on the mind and <laughs> very appreciative at the moment. So, I, I'm, thanks for mentioning the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, So my selection is... Such an erudite podcast.
4: (laughs) Yes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it must elevate it's, the it's, morals it's, <laughs> and minds of everybody listening to us. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's the yep. aspiration. That we um, hope so. Well, actually, this will not be the highest brow I recommend, really. It's just a bunch of fun. I actually quoted from it at the very top of the podcast. It's the New York Times as winners and losers of the Democratic debate, which is a feature they do. It's, it's you know, again, not the most elevated thing. It's basically the most horse-racy, scorecardy kind of thing, but they did, they gathered together a lot of smart people from all over the spectrum, Will Wilkinson, Nick Kristoff, Shamil Bowie, Elizabeth Brunig, Michelle Cottle, Dan McCarthy, uh, Ross Douthit, uh, and several others, including, yeah, Brett Stevens, Pete Wayner. and they give just very quick kind of summaries of each candidate and how they did, and they give them a score of one to ten, and it's it's a lot of fun usually, and it's especially good this time because last night's debate was kind of fireworks so if you're looking for a little bit of that kind of political fun it, it's fun look it up uh, as a feature
0: will do thank you um mine oh yeah no ahead. i'm sorry
4: no i'll go after you since okay you haven't-
2: all
0: right mine is um so when we first started doing these end of the podcast um talks uh we established that we would try to find something that someone on the other side had written to um, agree with, or and then we expanded it to disagreeing with someone on our own side, and then it just became something we wanted to draw attention to. Uh, I did get a no- very nice letter from a listener saying that he hopes we'll go back to the first version. Um, so in a gesture, in a nod to that, let me let me make my um, Final note about someone who is on my side. I mean, it's hard to get more on my side than David Brooks because not only are we both conservatives who are no longer Republicans and certainly not Trump fans, uh, but uh, but anyway, so so the, well that defines a, a a very small group. But he had a piece um, last week in the Atlantic um, saying that the nuclear family had been a failure and a disaster. And so I um vehemently disagree with this and I wrote a reply, a lengthy reply which you can find in uh the bulwark um where I um you know I, I really um uh gave all of my reasons so I disagree with David Brooks.
2: That's that's my final note.
4: For the record I do too. Uh,
2: and so do I. I endorse yeah. Mona's piece on that. <laughs>
4: uh, the uh <laughs> thank the you. Know, I want to say that in my distress as a Democrat, both capital and small d, I let my mind wander forward a couple of weeks to a the final contest within the Democratic Party, and I call it the Grumpy Old Jewish Guys Contest. <laughs>
2: uh, and
4: I did a statistical analysis of a Sanders uh, uh, of a Sanders uh, and. Uh, and Bloomberg final, and here were the results. Average age, 78 years, three months. Average height, 5'10". Average wealth, $30 $30 30, $30 billion. <laughs> Average year spent as a socialist, 39 <laughs> And finally, uh, the SNL skit, played, of course, by Larry David and Mel Brooks. <laughs> That's very good.
3: Yeah, I was, I was wondering who was going to play. I'm, I'm, I I always look forward these debates when I'm watching. Actually, this is what my granddaughter said. She said, oh, I can't wait for SNL to see who's going to debate. The and only, by the way, she liked Bloomberg the best oh so there you go all right and she's that not got to be some
4: that's an unusual person. granddaughter yeah, well,
3: yeah yeah she's my
4: granddaughter i, I
3: understand there there you go
4: <laughs> all right thanks one oh. and all
0: till next time